Welcome to Horizon. My name is Ryan and I direct the family ministry here. And today I'm joining you as we continue our journey through the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to be looking at the first 22 verses of chapter 25. And for the first time in a few weeks, we're not going to just be talking about David running for his life from King Saul. Um, In fact, we're going to be trying to answer a question from this chapter. Okay, and that question is going to be this. What do we do when life doesn't go our way? In David's own words from this chapter in chapter 21, he puts it this way. He says, he's been repaid evil for good. So what do we do when we feel like life or someone else is repaying us evil for good? Today, we're going to look at uh, three questions that we can ask ourselves when we find ourselves in those moments. So let's go ahead and jump in. So chapter uh, 25, verse 1, it says, Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So right away, we learn that Samuel, this great prophet of Israel, the judge of Israel, the uh, counselor of kings, has passed away. And we know that he and David were close, that he was a friend, a counselor. So this would have been a really hard day for David. If you've ever lost someone of that caliber in your life, it's tough when you wake up that first morning and realize that you can no longer get their counsel. So it's bad news for David. And it's interesting, too, that this great man, Samuel, this man that is mentioned in the heroes of the Bible in Hebrews, he gets one sentence of one verse of the entire Bible when he dies. This man that has served so well across all of his life gets one sentence of one verse of the entire Bible. It can make you wonder, but but here's what I know to be true and why I think that is so, is that God's kingdom, his movement here on earth and in heaven is always far bigger than any one man or any one woman. That no matter what kind of impact that one person has, that the train just keeps on chugging. And uh, that is why God says that our life is like a vapor. Uh, we simply get one lap around the track and then we pass the baton on to the next man. And this is what we're seeing here. And it's really a thing called legacy. Um, and, and we see that a lot around here at Horizon, don't we? And when we walk the, wa- the halls here, you see a lot of family businesses that have been passed down generationally. We see a lot of faith um, that has been passed down from friends to other friends. And last weekend, I had a, a great example of this. It was breathtaking. We, we did a baptism out on the terrace, and we had eight folks that wanted to just um, confess and make a statement that they were going to follow Jesus. Um, so it was, it was a great baptism, beautiful day. And uh, we baptized brothers and married couples. And um, my favorite, if I'm allowed to say that, uh, was the Roberts girls, that Emma and Abby Okay, it's a high school girl and a uh, junior high girl. They were baptized by their grandfather. It it was amazing. He was a retired pastor. And to watch him baptize his granddaughters and call them by name and and speak tenderly to them was impressive. And and to me, that is just an amazing sign of legacy. And when we think of David and Samuel, like it would be interesting to find an epitaph for Samuel here, right? Many paragraphs, or you have David, this great linguist and poet. Why didn't he write an epic poem? But instead, all we get is this passing of the baton. 
And it makes me ask myself, like, what legacy am I living into? Who has passed me a baton, and and am I running hard um, on that race? And it also makes me ask myself, what baton am I passing backwards? Like, what legacy am I leaving So deep questions as we start this chapter, and then it's like a channel flips, and we dive right in uh, to what's going on with David. So verse 2 here says, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in camel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. So David heads out into the wilderness with 600 of his men. He is uh, grief-stricken, and, and we find out that he runs into this odd couple of sorts. We meet a man that before we even learn his name, we are told that he is just amazingly wealthy. He has thousands of sheep and goats. But beside all of those sheep, we also find out that he is a, a, a bad man, right? Like he is evil and, and he is uh, vile. We also learn here, it's interesting that he's part of the house of Caleb. So if we think back, Caleb was one of the spies that Moses sends to the promised land to, to check it out. And Caleb is one of the men, along with Joshua, who comes back and gives a a positive report um, and says, hey, let's go do what God told us to. So he's kind of a hero of the Bible. And it's interesting that Nabal here, he inherits Caleb's lands, Caleb's family name, but he doesn't inherit Caleb's courage and faith, apparently. But we also get to meet Abigail, and this is Nabal's better half. And like many of us here, Nabal has married up, that somehow he has landed Abigail. And the Bible says that she is both smart and beautiful. She is the whole package. And only three times in scripture does it refer to a woman in this way. So she is much like my wife and a lot of the women here at Horizon, right? She's got both things going for her, brains and beauty. So they are an odd couple, and we're going to find that they're about to run headlong into an altercation with the future king of Israel. Let's dive in here to verse four. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace be to your house and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you, therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words, in the name of David, and they waited. So I know this can sound like a uh, a mafia shakedown, sort of, that David is sending some goons up to visit Nabal, and it's sort of like, you know, hey, Nabal, we have been taking care of your sheep all summer, and none of them have disappeared. So if if you know what's good for you, you might want to wet our whistle a little bit so we don't kill any sheep, 
right? That's sort of what you could be thinking is happening here, um, but it's, it's really not. That uh, customarily and in this culture, this would have been a perfectly appropriate approach. And there's three reasons why. Okay, the first one is the win of the visit that David sends his men during the shearing season. That this would have been a, a holiday environment that they had worked all year long to keep these sheep and goats alive. And, and now they were going to shear them and sell their wool. So it was like payday. Um, and, and David also mentions in there, hey, we're coming on a feast day, right? So the wine would have been flowing. The food would have been laid out. It was a time of uh, hospitality and um, generosity. The, the only thing I can equate it to for us in America would be the Christmas season, right? Where you're going to eat too much. <laughs> the, the wine might be flowing. And it is a time of hospitality and generosity. So the timing is right. And, and then we look at the how, that David sends 10 young men, 10 young boys. He doesn't send warriors. He's not sending guys up there to rough them up. He's sending 10 of the most polite young men that you'll ever meet, apparently, because it is peace to you and peace to you and butterflies and rainbows. I mean, it is like Oprah giving away peace. It's peace to you and you get some peace, right? Like it is all about peace. They're not going to rough up anybody. And the big ask that we see in verse eight is, Hey, Nabal, can you give us whatever you have? Like if you guys are having hamburgers today, then we'll take some hamburgers. Or if you're having soup, then soup sounds good. Or broccoli, we'll even take the broccoli, Nabal. Right, it's not demanding. They're not asking for Kobe beef and a million dollars. They're asking for whatever you have. And then the last thing we've got to look at here as to why this is an appropriate visit is the why that in reality, what David is alluding to here is actually happened. That we know that the Philistines would raid Israeli herds and they would take animals and they would kill shepherds. That it was just a cost of doing business for Nabal is that he was going to lose sheep and men every year. And in this year, he lost zero sheep. He didn't lose a single animal. He didn't lose a single man thanks to David and his men. So it was a perfectly appropriate time to approach. Uh, and he was asking to be paid for services that he had rendered. So surely Nabal is going to be generous here, right? Like he's going to think back and remember all that David has done. Well, well, let's see. Let's see what Nabal says here. It says, then Nabal answered in verse 10, David's servants and said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? So somehow he doesn't know who David is, but he knows that he's the son of Jesse. So something's off here. Um, there are many servants nowadays who break away from each from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and, and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So again, here's what Nabal's doing. He's getting really stubborn and he's digging in his heels and he's hunkering down and he's becoming hard-headed, right? He's saying to David, look, I don't even know who you are, which is a total lie because David was a hero of Israel. He had killed Goliath. They sang songs about the man. Nabal certainly knew who David was. And we know that because he says he's the son of Jesse. But he's saying, who are you to show up at my door asking for food, David? 
And then he pokes at the wound of Saul and he says to David, hey, David, there's a lot of servants who have just run away from their masters and that's you. You've run away from Saul and you are just a servant showing up at my door. Friends, he's getting really hard headed here. And I wonder if we can relate. And the first question that I think we've got to ask ourselves when we, we come to times that aren't what we want, when we face situations that aren't fun, that things don't go our way, or as David said, when we get paid evil for good, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we become hard-headed like Nabal? And, and it makes me think of, when I think of Nabal, I think of a sledgehammer, that, that relationally, Nabal would have been like a sledgehammer to deal with. Right? He was hard and he was unyielding. He did a lot of damage. He would not have been fun to interact with. And, and I wonder if, if my friends and, and my spouse and my coworkers, would they say that about me? Would they say, man, Ryan is like a hammer. Like he is not fun when things don't go his way. You know, there's a, a new... Um, terminology now, and it's called a nail house. A nail house is a, a piece of property that a homeowner just refuses to sell. And this one here is the Wu family's house in China. And they were the last of 280 homeowners um, holding out when a public domain had been instilled. And uh, the developer digs a 35 foot deep pit around their home. And they just snuck in and they lived there for two years and they turned down a half a million dollars for their house, which to me looks like that would have been a nice payday for them. But instead they, they stayed. And I know there's something American that we value in that stubbornness that we're like, oh, that's actually smart. Um, but I wouldn't want to live in that house for two years with no electricity and no water, that the writing was on the wall. And eventually what happens is the home is torn down and they get 20% of that original offer. They walk away with 100,000. And it's like they cut off their nose to spite their face. And that's kind of a fool's errand. And what's interesting here is that uh, Nabal's name in Hebrew actually means fool. That the Bible is telling us, they're saying, hey, this guy's a complete fool, okay? So being hard-headed is foolish. You don't wanna be it. But we have to begin asking ourselves, why is he like this? Why is he such a hard-headed man? And I think the answer was in verse 11 that we read, that his hard-headedness is coming straight up from his hard-heartedness. And what I mean is this. Let's look at verse 11. Let's count how many times he uses the word my. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from. That Nabal uses the my possessive word there four times. And he's saying, hey, this is Nabal's world. It is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all about Nabal all the time, right? It is all Nabal. And his heart has grown amazingly hard. And because of that, his head has grown amazingly hard. You know what the antidote is to um, hard-headedness and hard-heartedness? It's humility and gratitude that, that Nabal could have thought like, hey, God, thank you for 
giving me such an amazing wife like Abigail, right? Like I'm not fun to be around. Like people tell me that. And you've given me a beautiful and smart wife. Thank you. Or God, thank you for the wealth and the lands that have been passed down to me from Caleb. Thank you for letting me be part of that family lineage. But instead, it is me. It's about Nabal. It's the Nabal show. And that creates a hard-headedness. And humility is such a, uh, a treasured trait. And one of my fondest early memories here at Horizon uh, four years ago is when I started diving into the ministry and rubbing shoulders with the volunteers. You know, and in student ministry, you do a lot of cleanup, okay? And some of it's not pretty. So you're down there scrubbing up soda off the floor. You're picking up cookies that have been tossed everywhere you can imagine, Um, And I remember rubbing shoulders with these other adults and getting to know them and finding out that some of them were doctors and some of them were business owners and one of them was a CEO. And I'm thinking, this guy's down here scrubbing Coca-Cola off the floor with me. That humility comes from a a soft heart and, and that leads to a soft head. Let's continue here. Verse 12. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back. And they came and told him all of these words. Then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. There's a lot of girding going on here, if you haven't caught that. And about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. So friends, here David is... He is just reacting, okay? And he is flying off the handle that he hears about Nabal's insult. He hears that Nabal is poking at that wound with Saul and he is out for blood. 400 men are throwing on swords and weaponry and they're heading to go pay old Nabal a visit. And just in case we're thinking maybe they're just going to like intimidate or deliver a message, um, the Bible's wonderful because a few verses down, it gives us David's intentions, Verse 21, it says, Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. He's saying, I totally wasted my time. I protected everything. I've done everything right, but it's been in vain. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. So David is saying, hey, we are, we are on the rampage, right? Like we are heading there and I'm gonna kill every male in Nabal's encampment. They're all gonna die, right? And long gone is the David who is in the cave and he can just reach out and just kill Saul, the guy who's been chasing him for a decade, but he shows the restraint to not do it. Long gone is the David that's sending peace and butterflies to Nabal. And now instead of you get some peace, you get some peace, you get some peace, it's you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, right? David is going to be the judge, jury, and executioner. He is hangry. (laughs) And if you've ever been hangry, the end of a work day where you skip lunch, it's not a good time to make decisions. And he's on the cusp of making a major, major mistake. And it leads us to ask ourselves another question that when when life doesn't go my way, when I get repaid evil for good, do I become hot-headed? Am I scary? Do I explode in explosive ways? 
Do I act without thinking? And when I think of this with David relationally, I think of fire, right? That David is like this fire that lights and he just explodes and fire is useful. We need our aggression, right, to protect and provide, but but unrestricted fire is dangerous. And it makes me wonder, what's, what's going on with David that, that out of nowhere he goes from showing restraint with Saul to about ready to murder a whole village? Um, well, well, again, I think it's here in Scripture. And he has repaid me evil for good that David is getting stuck on this idea of, I did good. I was a good boy. I did what I was told. I did what I knew was right. I'm being repaid evil. Have you ever been there? Like, have you ever been in a relationship, whether personal or, or a professional, where you did everything right? You just kept bringing the treasure, but you just kept getting the garbage, right? That you showed up, you loved, you encouraged, you fulfilled your end of the contract, but they, the payback never came. Instead, only insults and pain. Well, if, if you've been there, you know that it can be tempting in that moment to, to start to forget about phrases like love your neighbor and, and forgive those as, you know, God has forgiven me. And instead, I start thinking about phrases like, I don't get mad, I get even, <laughs> right? <laughs> that I start thinking of an R word called revenge, have you ever been watching a, a show? Maybe you're uh, binge watching something on Netflix. Uh, my wife and I have uh, got caught up in The Blacklist, which is a, a fun show. Um, it, pretty violent, but pretty uh, engaging too. And every season there's a villain, right? And this villain does atrocious stuff. Like they do horrible stuff. And, and by the end of the season, you really don't like them. They do a good job of making that clear. Um, but typically in the season finale, that villain... We're six seasons in, and every season it's the same. That villain gets what's coming to them, right? And it's never pretty. They're pushing up daisies. They're gone from the show. We'll just put it that way. Um, but every time I am like, yes, right? Like my kids are sleeping, and I'm screaming in the living room because the villain, the guy who's been so horrible, has finally gotten the revenge that he deserved, that he finally is getting this justice, and it's always served sweetly from the hero of the show. And I wonder why that is. And as I think about it, I think it's because revenge, it just feels good, right? Like we love those videos where somebody gets paid back right away when they do something. That, that we love the feeling of revenge. But here's the problem as a, a Christ follower is revenge isn't ours. It's, it's not ours to give. We're told this, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That is a, a Christ follower that God is saying, hey, let me handle the, the vengeance, right? And maybe you're like me. Okay, because here's me when I read that verse. I say, well, God, you're kind of busy. You know, you're sort of running like the whole world and stuff. And I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot going on right now, God. Um, so I could help you out. Like, I wouldn't mind being like your vengeance sidekick, you know, maybe like a minor character in this vengeance thing. Um, and I'm pretty good at it. Like, just, just put me in, coach, right? 
that's what I want to do. But the, the truth is, is that even though vengeance feels good, that as a Christ follower, that we are, we are meant to be moved by truth and not by emotions and feelings. That the truth of the matter is this in Romans 12, 19, that God says, vengeance is mine. And David knew this. This is why David didn't kill Saul, because he knew that that was God's issue to handle. But here David is forgetting it. He's ready to go maim a whole village. You know, I think of Paul in the New Testament. Like, think about Paul for a little bit. You know, he's Saul, he becomes Paul, and he just starts obeying everything God says. He goes where he's supposed to go. He says what he's supposed to say, does what he's supposed to do. And all he gets out of it from the world, not from God, but from the world, is garbage and pain and evil. He puts all this goodness in, and he just gets back evil. He's beaten. He's imprisoned. He's just hunted down. His life is a total train wreck. And I bet you Paul had those moments where he wanted to get revenge, right? It could have been a cool plot twist for the Bible if Paul went back to being Saul and just started taking out his enemies, you know, like a Liam Neeson movie or something. That would have been pretty cool to see. Um, But it doesn't happen because Paul knew this truth. Paul wrote these words. You know what the uh, antidote to hot-headedness is? It's trusting God. It's saying, hey, God, I trust you to right the wrongs that have been uh, inflicted in my life. I trust you to be the, the, the one who takes revenge. I don't have to. You know, and you may think, well, so Ryan, then I don't need to send that nasty email back to that person who sent me that really rude email. Well, no, you, you probably don't, right? Like, who cares? Okay, Ryan, so when my, my neighbor keeps like, parking his car and he's putting lines in my lot, my yard. And I, I don't need to just go over there and make sure he knows how angry I am. Well, well, no, you could probably just have a conversation, you know. Okay, so just so I'm clear, don't want to miss anything here. So when I'm on the highway and that jerk cuts me off and he flips me the bird, I don't need to reciprocate. Like just so he learns his lesson. Well, well no, you don't, you don't need to throw the old one finger salute back at him. Because God owns vengeance. He is the one that gets to pay someone back. And here's why, is that our vengeance is never pure, right? That our wrath doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. It brings about the righteousness of Ryan, which is sinful and jaded and marred. That my, my revenge is always mixed with my own sin. So we've got to let God do that. All right, so let's recap here. So we know that Nabal is back in the camp. He's, he's sent away the schoolboys. He said, you guys go tell David to just, you know, buzz off. Um, he's still taking part in the party. We know that David is on his way with 400 men ready to do some damage. Well, in the midst of that, where is our beauty? Where is our, our wise and, and beautiful Abigail? In verse 14, it says, now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. He just sent them away. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them. When we were in the fields, they were a wall to us, both by night and day. 
and all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. So this servant of Nabal is, is confirming what David said to be true, that they had protected them. They had saved them countless sheep losses and shepherd losses, that that was true. And he continues, he says, Now therefore know and consider what you will do, Abigail, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. So kind of a funny conversation going on here between a servant and the uh, wife of the, the Lord of the manor, if you will. But um, he's saying, hey, we're in trouble. That David is a guy that doesn't mess around. And the way that Nabal sent those 10 choir boys off is gonna, it's gonna make David angry, okay? But it, he's also saying, hey, Nabal is a, he's a mule. He digs in his heels. He doesn't listen. Nobody can talk to him, right? And Abigail is just shaking her head like, you're telling me, like she knows this. Her life is not a fairy tale. This is not what Abigail imagined when she was a little girl, being married to a harsh and evil man, a scoundrel. And you wonder, how can Nabal live this way? And everyone around him sees his hard-headedness, his stubbornness, but he can't see it. Well, sometimes it's our, our blind spot. It's our blind spots that, that are our, our greatest weakness. And one of the things that I'm excited about that, that's coming up here at Horizon that could, that could help me is we do a thing called authentic manhood, okay? And it is a, it's a study for men. It's on Sunday nights at, at 8 or, or Monday mornings at 6.09 up in the garage here. Or we might do it outdoors. We're playing that by ear for now. Um, but we bring in a guy named Ken Kington. He's a, he's a, a comedian, a, a teacher, a, a Christian man from Atlanta. And he is, he's wise and he's funny, but he comes in and he helps us think about our marriages, that, that this year we're going to talk about a man and his marriage. And that's going to begin September 13th. And, and that would be a way for us as men, at least, to, to not have these blind spots where our friends and our wife and everybody's saying, hey, he's a, he's a stubborn mule, but we don't see it. Because sometimes getting around a table and, and having other men speak into your life helps you to see what you can't see on your own. So I'm excited about that. It's starting September 13th. You can sign up um, on the Horizon uh, website, of course. But Abigail here, she knows what's happening. She knows her husband's a stubborn mule. And she, if anyone has the right to be hard-headed or hot-headed, it's Abigail, right? She could join Nabal and be hard-headed and say, yeah, who's David to come knocking on our door for food? Or she could go the hot-headed route and say, Nabal, you are an idiot. She could go in there and start screaming at him and losing her mind. And I would totally understand where she's coming from, but let's see what she does. It says, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal that when Abigail could have responded in a hard-headed manner or a hot-headed manner, and instead she chooses to respond in a, a level-headed manner. And what I have to ask myself, 
when, it, when I think of her story is when, when life doesn't go my way, how do I become level-headed? Like, how can I become a little more like Abigail? And again, not just when I get cut off in traffic or when the show I love gets canceled. No, I'm talking the big things, the things that trigger you. How can you become more level-headed? And when you think of Abigail, she certainly, in the same way this level would work, she certainly looked at the situation and she measured it. And she said, hey, David is a man not to be messed with. We better make haste, right? And then she looked at her husband and what she knew to be true of him. And she said, hey, he's a a fool. I'm not going to tell him what we're doing because he'll ruin it and we will all die, (laughs) right? She measures it accurately. She is level-headed. Well, the the question becomes, well, how do I do that? It's hard to be level-headed when things really matter and they really are the important things in life. Well, we don't get to see how this story is going to end. We get one more verse and then next week, Drew is going to pick it up and give us the conclusion. But we do get one more verse that is going to give us a beautiful clue. And it's here in verse 20. It says, so it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under the cover of the hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. So she loaded a Thanksgiving buffet of food, raisins and cakes and dates, and it's all coming towards David. And David's coming with his caravan also. And you get this beautiful image of these two diabolically opposed caravans. One coming with angry men with swords bent on retribution and revenge, and another caravan coming filled with goodness and blessing and bent on reconciliation. And like I said, the the conclusion of the story will be next week. And you're going to want to see that. But what I think of for this week is that that this moment of reconciliation, this caravan that is approaching is an echo of a moment in the not so distant future from this day on a hill, on a cross, where, where, where the ultimate reconciliation was about to happen. Right? That if anybody had the right to become hard-headed, it was Jesus. He certainly could have looked around and said, hey, this is my world. These are my people. This is my life. You're not going to take it. But instead of my, Jesus uses the word your. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And if anybody had the, the right to become hot-headed, it was Jesus. He, w- he was spit on. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was stabbed. He was eventually killed. He had, he had the power to call down a legion of angels. He certainly could have exploded into anger, but instead he, he says the words, Father, forgive them. You see, Abigail's a great example of, of a level-headed leader, but she is just a shadow of our ultimate level-headed leader in Christ. And what Jesus did is he took that analogy of being repaid evil for goodness and he turned it on its head. And he said, hey, give me all your evil and and I'm going to repay you goodness. I'm going to flip it. So friends, today, as, as you consider this question of how do I respond when life doesn't go my way? How do I respond when I'm repaid evil for good? My encouragement to you and my encouragement to myself is draw near to the level-headed Savior in Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your word. I thank you for the story of David. 
Thank you for uh, a wife like Abigail. I thank you even for the example of a fool like Nabal. And, and I confess that I am far more often than I, I want to admit, I am hard-headed and I am hot-headed, that I react with my emotions. And I just pray that you would help me to draw near to you as a source of, of power and energy to become more like you and become more level-headed when I face those struggles in my life. I thank you in your name. Amen.